That'll work. Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Good. You guys look good. Uh, let's just start by praying. Lord, I am feeling overjoyed being swept up in the uh, excitement that is the church, Lord, to have um, uh, such a lively worship time all together as a family and to uh, enjoy this, this idea of the universal church, that we are mobilized and taking part in this thing that is greater than ourselves, that is so personal and private between us and Jesus, and yet magnanimous in size. I am I'm overjoyed to take part in that. Really pray that you would bless this time and that you would speak truth and that it would awaken praise Lord, please bless my words. You know the nerves that I have. You know the insecurities that I have because I'm just a man. But I'm here this morning to serve my brothers and sisters whom I love out of the same love that you have for them. So thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. A lot of people here are taller than me. There we go. Uh, today, we are starting a new sermon series. We're working our way through uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're starting a new series today called House Rules, How to Live Together as Christians. This is a portion of 2 Corinthians where Paul is doing some housekeeping, sort of. He's addressing certain things that are going on in Corinth um, between him and them as well as amongst them themselves. And from that, we gather some really, really wonderful principles that can shape uh, the way that we operate as a family that is the church. So we're going to go over a few things. Uh, We're going to be talking about faithfulness this morning, and then next week we're going to be talking about this uh, operating principle of doing no harm to one another, which is kind of a specific facet of how we love each other. And then the last part of House Rules is going to be about forgiveness. It's a really, really uh, interesting portion of 2 Corinthians where we get to see this. And so today, we're going to be talking about faithfulness. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12, and we're only going to get as far as verse 22, which is going to maybe throw off the way your paragraphs and chapters are set up in your Bible, but we'll be 12 through 22. Before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about what faithfulness is. Then we're going to do a little contextual introduction about what has happened in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, and then we'll actually get into our text. And I'm going to hope to get through this relatively quickly. Faithfulness, it's akin to words like trust, reliability, dependability, Um, A a synonym for it is is fidelity, purity. Amongst relationships, a faithful relationship is one that's unadulterated and very closely related to that in the idea of faithfulness to marriage is a marriage without adultery. Faithfulness oftentimes means keeping promises. It means being exactly what the counterpart in that relationship expects you to be and having no variance underneath. Faithfulness is a terribly high standard to meet. 
and it generates a lot of pressure within us, so much so that eventually we start to buckle under the pressure and just kind of hedge back. That's why it's so prominent in the world for people to be only kind of comparing themselves not to their ideals, but to their peers. We, we own this idea of imperfection and failure so much so that we gauge our very lives and the things that we care about the most, including our families, our career paths, our parenting skills, our friendships, even though those are the most important things for us, even our faith, we grade them on a curve. It's because we are so terribly aware of our insufficiencies. It's this lateral issue that we have to where not only do we see ourselves as unworthy of a good relationship, we see ourselves as failures. And so we kind of keep everybody at arm's length because we don't want to harm people too greatly or we won't, don't want people to know our greatest insufficiencies. But it also makes us not just terribly aware of ourselves, but cynical of other people. It changes the way we look at our peers. We don't trust each other very much. There was a poll taken um, over the baby boomers, and it was a survey that said, how much do you trust the people around you? And you'll be shocked at how low that number is for the sake of, uh, of the fact that we consider this, this, baby, this baby boomer generation as being so uh, neighborly and companion-like and fellowshipping and with, with one another, they, only 40%, that's a hard F, only 40% <laughs> of, of this really kind generation feels like they can trust each other. Well, we've not gotten much better. The, the survey was, was rerun with the millennial generation. If you don't know the millennial generation, Colbert says millennials are the generation of people who don't use the term millennial. Only the old people use that term. But the millennials are anyone born in the, uh, I think it's 88 to now, so it, it includes back before the year 2000. Millennials are at a 19% trust level. That's an even harder F. Now, it, put that on the shelf just for a second. Because there's a terrible irony in this human condition that we don't trust each other, we don't trust ourselves, so we keep everybody at an arm's length. However, an undeniable truth of the human condition is also inside us dwells this incredible need and desire to be close to people. We want to be able to have intimacy with our friends and with our spouses and with our family members to where we can let them in, to where we can depend on them, so that way they can depend on us but we don't because of that reservation. Because we know our own insufficiencies and if we really love somebody, we don't wanna hurt them. It's also because we know other people's insufficiencies and if we really love them, we don't want them to hurt us because that will damage the relationship. So we're caught in this gray area that's incredibly terrible because it makes damage control manageable. We still get hurt, but it's manageable. The, however, the farther we keep those away from us and the less they hurt us, it's also the less intimate, the less love that we feel. I have a bubble, a buffer zone that protects us from being hurt, but also 
deprives us from the closeness that deep in the very nature of our hearts we desire. It's this inescapable dichotomy uh, to which humans are damned. Consider that this morning, and let's talk about the contextual uh, introduction of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, um, this portion of 2 Corinthians specifically, is going to be based a lot on a plan that Paul made back in 1 Corinthians. Actually, the last time I taught with you guys, we were over this passage. So it's specifically in 1 Corinthians 16.5. Paul is well aware that the Corinthian church is, is very, very misguided and they're having all sorts of issues with each other and um, against him. And so because he loves them, he wants to spend time with them. He says, I have a plan on the agenda to go to Macedonia, which was relatively close to Corinth. So he said, I am going to Macedonia, and I'm going to pop down and see you guys afterwards. Okay, so he, he deviates from that plan slightly. He goes to see them before Macedonia on what we'll call an additional trip. And so when he goes there, he's seeing them before he's going up to Macedonia, and it is a horrible trip. He finds that the church is much worse off than it was before, and it's worse than he'd ever known. People, uh, it seems, apparently stood up in the congregation and, and called out Paul and made accusations against him, so much so that he had to, he effectively left in secret. Then he went to Macedonia, did his ministry there, and when that time was up, he decided not to come back to Corinth. He decided not to come back to Corinth for obvious reasons. His visit with them was so terrible. But that only added more fuel to the fire. His adversaries within the Corinthian church stood up again and said, look at the unreliability of Paul. How can we trust him? He says he's going to come towards the winter, but he comes in early fall. And then he says he's still going to come during winter and he doesn't show up. Why do you guys owe any sort of trust to this man? And... Uh, News gets to Paul, and he's, he's very, very hurt by that. And what we get the pleasure of reading today is the, uh, the defense that he gives. Let's, let's read it. It's not my pen. First Corinthian, or Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. And I'm reading out of New King James today. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read and read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I, intend to come, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on, your way, on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning to do this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that... With me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, 
that is by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The word of the Lord. I'm going to pray once more because it just seems appropriate. Father, um, Paul's words here can, can be a little bit hard to understand, which is kind of ironic because he says, you know, I'm writing this too so you'll understand. Um, and so I just pray that your truth would come, come over this place and that we would be able to handle your word rightly and understand what is eternally written as an expression of who you are in character and how you feel towards your church. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. I want to talk a little bit about boasting as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. Paul talks a lot about boasting in 2 Corinthians. It will come up over and over again. It's come up twice in this passage that we read, and it's not the boasting that we're normally used to. It's, it's not arrogantly parading himself around to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. But he uses this term boasting as uh, an expression of how joyful he feels in excitement for, for something. And these are both godly spaces, and we'll go get to them individually. But imagine this, being coming so excited that you are gushing with joy and have to express it to the point of celebration. That's what he means by boasting, that he's become so excited that he has to celebrate vocally and express himself. He can't keep it to himself because it's just so much. So it starts out, this passage, talking about his boasting and his team's boasting. He says their boasting is effectively the reputation they have in the world. I'm going to give you a warning For, for this entire passage, Paul's going to say some stuff that makes him sound really, really big-headed. But, but stick with it because it's all based in the Lord, as we'll see in verse 12. He says their testimony in the entire world is one of simplicity and godly sincerity. Those words are really, really cool in the Greek. The, the Greek word that he, that's translated simplicity here literally means no folds. It's, it's open to you, kind of like an open book. There's no devils and details hidden somewhere in the creases. It's not overtly complicated to where you have no idea what our motivation is before you. It is foldless. It is simple. You won't get lost in the details like trying to read a newspaper that's been folded into an origami crane. It's not like that. No folds. And the word godly sincerity, uh, it expresses... Worthy of judgment in the sunlight. Clear as day. My reputation in the world is not shady. There's nothing veiled in what I am doing in my behavior and ministry. He says that he's so excited that his reputation in these regards hold up in the world. His and his team's reputation, that is. It makes him so excited that that reputation is established for him in the entire world. And then look at 
what he says at the end of verse 12. He says, and more abundantly toward you. I prefer the ESV version that says, and supremely towards you. He's calling out the Corinthians. He's saying, not only am, are we reputable, um, unreproachable, and, and unimpeachable all over the world, but our highest example of that is the way we've been to you, Corinthians, specifically. And we know this to actually be true. Uh, Paul stayed in Corinth only uh, the, second, the second longest time he ever spent in a single city. He spent 18 months there, a year and a half. And other than in Ephesus, where he spent about three years, that's vastly longer than he spent in any other city. Also, we know that when he was pastoring in Corinth, he did it entirely free of charge. He had a day job with Priscilla and Aquila building tents. There is no way people could wonder why this guy is here. Is he here for profit? No, he works as a tent maker. Is he here because these are intensely nice people? Don't make me laugh. He has a, a relationship with them that involves rebuke, but not because he has this power struggle and that he, because he's, um, he gets some sort of giddiness out of being authoritarian. In 1 Corinthians, he describes his rebuke as being because he does not want them to be deceived. He cares about them. He dwells closely with them to protect them. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says that he wants to spend a lot of time with them because he loves them. Now, Paul says, you guys, Corinthians, should know firsthand better than any other church in the entire world that I have no hidden agenda with you. And he says, and that makes me so excited, I just want to celebrate it. But he's not celebrating it because he is so well-disciplined that he was able to keep up a moralistic facade in front of them. He's not celebrating how good of a person he is. In, in verse 12, he says that it, he was able to uh, create this reputation not out of fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. His security is entirely in his confidence that God is so good that he's made Paul and his team good. And that excites him because nobody knows how sinful and imperfect Paul was than Paul himself. And so for Paul to see that God has made him an irreproachable pastor servant to this church in Corinth, it made him so excited that he boasted about it. So let's keep going. Verse 13. Um, yeah, we're going to read 13 and 14 together. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part. We are your boasts, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying here, uh, guys, don't try to figure out what I'm trying to say uh, the, the Message Bible here inserts a phrase, don't try to read between the lines, which I think appropriately communicates the tone here, saying, I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean. You understand a little bit what I mean, but I'm going to really hammer it home so you understand it to the fullest. He says, when Jesus comes, at the consummation of all things, where all veils are lifted, where all lies are made true, when everything that was hidden is shouted from the rooftops, then the Corinthians will celebrate with gushing joy 
the work that Paul and his team did. That they would no longer question whether or not he was being insincere toward them or overtly complicated and veiled. That before the Lord, they would be so excited in the grace that God had shown them by giving them Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And we know that to be true, right? Because we, we know what, what Paul's heart toward the church was. We are not swept up in the, uh, the deceit of these accusations. So we're kind of on Paul's side. We know that the Corinthians of that first century church that are now died and in the presence of the Lord, they realized that, that Paul had served them well. And we know that Paul rejoices in Corinth, um, not only because he loved them here in scripture, but because of his relationship with the Corinthians, we have not one but two letters from which the church for millennia has learned the very character of God and it's turned people to praise for thousands of years. Great joy over this broken relationship even beyond its brokenness. Not despite its brokenness, but beyond its brokenness. In the very redemption of the brokenness of that relationship. verses 15 through 16. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you may have a second benefit, to pass by the way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Uh, This is another one of those parts where it seems like Paul's being Maui from Moana. It's okay, it's okay, you're welcome. He says, I wanted to come to you guys in extra time so you guys could be blessed twice with me. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's in the word, though. You have to pay close attention. Uh, that he's, He built this phrase on, on the very beginning of verse 15, and in this confidence, referring back to the confidence he expressed in verse 12, meaning he was so sure that God's grace would make him a good relationship to the Corinthians that they would be excited to see him that it would give them such great blessing because God is so good that he elevated a sinful man like Paul, a murderer, a blasphemer, to become a godly servant for these broken people. Paul's confidence was not in his own reformation or his own improvement. His confidence was, no, this this has got to be how good God is. God has to be so good that even I would be a blessing to these people. And so he says, I I wanted to come to you a second time because I didn't think that I would be any inconvenience to you. It's kind of like you you get, maybe this is only a guy thing, but when you get close enough to your friends in high school, you start going through their fridge and eating their food without asking because you're just so sure and secure in that relationship. Consider this a a really, really big example of that same sentiment because Paul just shows up an additional time. And... um, he says that his plan was, he, he still was going to visit them on the other side of the Macedonian trip. And we'll find out next week why he didn't. We don't have time to talk about it. But it, it, he didn't break his plans by not showing up, or he didn't give them a fake plan. It, it really what was on the schedule, but because of the way the Corinthian visit went, he had to ratchet things a little bit. We'll learn about that next week. But it, it is to say that... Um, this, this is the reason for that first divergence from the plan, why he showed up an extra time, because he thought it would bless them. Okay, 
we're, we're going to have to read these, these next verses all as one section, 17 through 22. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But God is faithful. Our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is going to get really suspicious. This is going to get to a place where you may find yourself in the place of the Corinthians where you're like, this guy is really arrogant and sees himself really huge. Um, let's, let's delve into it. Firstly, don't miss the, the reference that Paul's making to what Jesus says in Matthew about oaths, right? Don't, don't make an oath by, by God's throne, or by heaven, which is God's throne room, or, or the earth, which is God's footstool, and don't make oaths at all. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. I'm going to insert this in here because this is really cool. Paul didn't exactly make a commitment to come see them after Macedonia. Um, I'm just going to read the verse to you really, really quickly, and then we'll jump off of it as soon as my nerd excitement is satisfied. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verses 5 through 7. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. Even in scripture, it was kind of a maybe, um, which, which is fascinating because that is a common enough phrase, if the Lord permits, but I, I did a kind of cursory search through the works of Paul. I don't see anywhere else in scripture he qualifies a commitment with, if the Lord permits. It's almost like the Holy Spirit was writing this thing. <laughs> it's, fa it's fascinating. He, he did really, genuinely want to come see them. He really was banking on it and planning on it, but he recognized even when making that plan that this was all in the Lord's hands, and when he comes to find, and when he stands in those plans, that the Lord had to direct him in another direction. So, so Paul, referring back to uh, Jesus's yes, yes, and no, no statement, he says, do you think that I say yes and no at the same time? Am I using double speak with you like, you know, some crooked politician? It's like, do you guys really think that I make these plans lightly or I do them according to my fleshly wisdom? Am I just trying to figure out my own plans? What's really great is this portion is organized like a legal defense, like a testimony in the courtroom. It actually starts with an oath, which is interesting, right? Because he's referring to this portion where Jesus is talking about don't make oaths. Um, he's not coming up and just... Uh, defying Jesus's commandment, because Jesus's commandment's about commitments, right? Don't oath commitments. Paul is making an oath of the veracity of a statement here, and you may miss it, because it sounds like he's just talking. Verse 18 sounds like it's the beginning of his argument, where it says, but God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. That phrase, God is faithful, 
is a legal oath. It's much like later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God as my witness. He's now rolling into this testimony where he's saying, you guys can trust this. I'm, I'm, I swear that this is true. But the, it's, it is interesting that the oath that he chooses is God is faithful because God's very faithfulness um, becomes an important point of his argument. So God is faithful. And then in verse 19, he starts talking about Jesus and he namely says, the son of God, Jesus Christ. The best way to understand what Paul is doing here is to imagine it as a flow chart. He's saying, I'm going to use this oath that says God is faithful. We can all agree on this part. And I'm going to get you from A to C and navigate through logic, okay? So he says, God is faithful. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he's saying that Jesus, bearing the very likeness of God the Father, is going to be exactly like God in faithfulness. Not only that, but he's going to get to a point where he says that Jesus himself is the faithfulness of God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And then he says, so God is faithful, Jesus Christ the Son of God, whom we preached to you. We didn't come to you offering you anything else. We just gave you Jesus' words because you didn't hear him firsthand. So if you agree that God is faithful, then you have to agree that Jesus is faithful because Jesus is his son and everything he does pleases the Father. Then just take my words like they're Jesus's. Because we're not offering you anything extra than what Jesus offered you. And then uh, he says... Oh, first he gives a roster. He said it was preached, to, preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy. That's three guys. That number is significant because according to the law in Deuteronomy, um, a, a testimony is verified by two or three witnesses. So he inserts there because uh, he, that's kind of the motif that he's following here, a legal defense. Um, and then he says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Understand that not only does Jesus agree with all the good promises God makes to his people, Jesus becomes the very fulfillment of those things. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, God promised that he would destroy the serpent by the seed of the woman. Not only does Jesus support and agree with that promise, he himself is the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head by way of his death upon the cross. When God promises to Abraham that through him all the nations will be blessed, that means not just Abraham's lineage, but all the Gentile nations of the world. When God says that, not only does Jesus agree and support that sentiment, he is the very fulfillment of salvation released and made possible to the entire world. And when God told David that there will be a king in his lineage who will never be taken off the throne, not only does Jesus support that, but Jesus is the very son of David. Everything good that God has ever offered to this world, even the coming wrath of judgment against all of things that are wrong, they're fulfilled in Jesus' very person, himself. That's what Paul means when he says that in him all the promises of God are yes and then he says, to the glory of God through us. God is faithful. 
Jesus is faithful. We are preaching God, or we're preaching Jesus. Jesus sent us. If our very presence in this church, Corinth, is because Jesus sent us here, then God is serving you. All the good promises, all the fulfillments of these good promises from Jesus, he's speaking it through us. Verse 21 is probably the most extreme radical verse because he says, he refers to the name Christ. And as you know, I I want you to, to bear memory of what Christ means. It is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah and it literally means anointed one. So I'm going to take out the word Christ, and I'm, I'm just going to sub, you know, substitute it with the term anointed one, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in the anointed one and has anointed us is God. Do you see what he did there? Jesus' very ministry assignment comes from God himself by God's anointing. He's assigned him. And he uses this exact same wording to say, the same God also anointed and assigned us. He's saying, we are Jesus to you. Pretty radical. Pretty extreme. I I echo the words of a speaker I like to listen to named Charlie Mackesy. The first time he heard the gospel, he was was moved in in, uh, frustration and in awe that he, he came up to a British vicar and he said, is this true? And the vicar just told him, he was, he was overcome by Charlie Max, he's weird. And he came up to me, and the vicar's like, uh, I guess so. And he's like, no, 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 I guess so. He's like, is this true? Because if it isn't, bend it. It's the most dangerous doctrine that's ever been taught the world. But if it is true, it's the greatest news there ever was. Now, for those of us who struggle with broken relationships, when we find out our parents are cheating on each other, when we find out that our coworkers have been embezzling money, when we find out that our government has been wronging its own people, when we find out that relationships are dictated, run by veiled sin, and then broken by exposed sin, if there is news that a pastor can love his church exactly as Jesus loved the church. If that's true, it's the most wonderful news there is. It's relief, it's security for us. But if not, bend it, it's the most dangerous doctrine that there ever was. What is the qualifier? How can we know if this is true? Verse 22. He's talking about God has sealed us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You guys know, this is what Paul's saying, you guys know that God has put us here because we've done a good job. You know that from the level of faithfulness I've shown this church, this is Paul, not me, the level of faithfulness Paul has shown the Corinthian church, you guys know that I've done this well. You guys know that I've, I was simple before you. You know that I was sincere before you. You know that I never took anything from you, but you guys continued to beat on me and take from me, and yet still there I was, much like our Lord Jesus Christ. The very fact that that was done, and you guys can recognize that, 
It can only be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's no other way that I could conjure and take the power of God unless it's given to me. Paul says, I've done this well. One can only do things well by the power of the Holy Spirit. One can only get the Holy Spirit by the anointing of God. He says, I'm here, you guys. I'm here and I've done this well. I'm here to represent Jesus to you guys. And if you guys reject me, then you're substituting the true relationship of your life that was intended for you by God's will for some other relationship. Who knows what they want? Who knows what their motivation is? Now, what this means for us, you guys, is that we can have a relationship with a God who is good. The reason why we rebel so much of the idea of God as authority in our lives is because we don't trust authority because we know nothing except for corrupt authority. We only know very corrupt authority and marginally corrupt authority. We don't know the goodness of God. And so we fear having a close relationship where our very eternal judgment depends on this God. We feel very, very insecure about that. But it's a relationship that's upon a different level than anything we've ever known. A relationship between the God we worship and the people he loves is one of self-sacrifice. It's one of ever-giving. It's one of never-taking. The example that Paul showed the Corinthians was made perfect in Jesus. And so... That's what we can have with our Lord. But if we don't have that, guys, there's no way that our relationships here on earth laterally amongst our peers, amongst our family, our friends, our spouses, our coworkers, our fellow civilians out there in the world, there's no way that we could ever love them purely unless we first tap into this very relationship that God has. That's what Paul's saying, right? He's saying, I have the Holy Spirit because God has given me, and because of that Holy Spirit, I've served you well. You cannot say that if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Holy Spirit except it be given to you by Jesus Christ. You want to be faithful to your commitments. You want to, despite your failures, to be worthy of the trust that your spouse and your family member and your friends show you. You cannot do that on your own. There's absolutely no way. And there's so much pain when you become disappointed because somebody has betrayed you. Or you become disappointed because you failed and thus betrayed the very person that you love. There's so much pain in that. It takes you back to childhood when you know that there was, there's nothing you can do to muster strength beyond your own. There's two options. Keep everybody at arm's length and we only marginally harm people, and they only marginally harm us, but we'll never know the close intimacy that we want deep in our hearts. Or, you can give Jesus all of your relationships and allow you, allow him to take your relationships and your abilities, your very ability to love, to a completely different level, Christ-like love. 
self-sacrificing, perfect, ever-giving, that can be yours. Now, this isn't to say that you can't have uh, good relationships outside of the church, outside of Jesus. You can have good relationships, but you can also have perfect relationships. And why settle for something good that's eventually going to break when you can have something that is perfect, suspended by the greatest power there is in all of the universe? Why settle for less? Why risk the, you know, the propensity to hurt somebody that you love so deeply only to try harder? God has not called you to try. He's called you to receive and to be transformed. If, regardless of if you're not a Christian this morning, regardless of whether you are a Christian, this is a word that is as true for the unsaved as it is for us who've been in the church for years. Jesus has come to restore and redeem everything that we know to the very intention of God. Genesis 1 and 2 design. If we think that the cross is only about forgiveness for our sins, we can understand that the game Jeopardy is about screens and lights. There's so much more to it than that. It's not just about forgiveness of our sins. It's about the transformation, the rebuilding, the redeeming, the restoring, the overflowing, gushing excitement, fulfillment in the eternal sense of every single thing we are. If Paul did it, and we have that same Holy Spirit, we can do it too. You know, we, we can fail, we will fail. But we can also succeed, and that, that alone is by God's grace. For the very incidents where we succeed, we can boast in those things because we know that it's based entirely on the grace of God. I want to open my heart to you guys and be really honest with you and be at risk of you guys thinking that I'm terribly arrogant. I'm going to kind of do a Paul thing here. I love you guys. And I swear to you, God is my witness, that my love for you is only from the Lord. I really, really, really do love you guys. And I boast in that because I know that that's from Jesus. I've known none of you longer than a year and a half. So I boast in that. And in eternity, when Jesus comes, I'm gonna stand before the Lord and I'm gonna celebrate with him the very people that you guys are And yeah, I fail you guys. I, I was going to keep notes this week about how many times I've failed you guys as a church, and I was going to share it with you, <laughs> but I didn't because I failed to do that. <laughs> all, all jokes aside, though, true love relationships line up the every nature that we have so we don't have to be broken systems but installed within our very purpose and creation. It has to start with our relationship with Jesus. But you know what the good news is? As God's relationship with you continues to grow, this kind of faithfulness, this level of faithfulness, will spill out laterally to the relationships around you. It can't be the motivation of why you know the Lord, but it's definitely going to be a result. And to that, as we go into our worship time, 
before the Lord, boast in the very victories that you've enjoyed because they're not your own. They're based upon the grace of God, not earthly, fleshly wisdom. So enjoy those victories and give God the glory for them. Don't have this false modesty that denies that you've had victory in your life because it's not denying your victory. It's denying God of the glory of his victories. Let's press in deeper to the Lord, experience true, full faithfulness that only he offers, and let's boast in the victories that God has shown. Amen? I love you guys. Let's pray, and then we're going to have worship. Jesus, we cannot begin to count all the ways that we fail those whom we love. We cannot begin to count all the ways we've been disappointed by those who have hurt us. But the fact that we can count, if only on one hand, times that we've had purity in our lives, godly sincerity, real genuineness and simplicity, those are victories that are due your name, and we can boast in that great amount of joy because it's only been accomplished by your grace. It's only been secured by the Holy Spirit. It's only been anointed by God the Father, and you deserve praise for that. I want to pray over the marriages, the friendships, the co-worker relationships that, that are implied within this room. And I pray that you would redeem them to be exactly what you intend them to be, that we would stop having this arm's length kind of buffer zone, but we would instead see Jesus' arms open wide as the very method and the very reason that we can let people in and become close to people and bless them. That maybe we could even get as far as Paul and say, because I know that God's over this relationship, I know that I'm a blessing to you. We, we want you this morning. Not the things that you give, but we want you yourself. And we want to allow our relationship with you to change us.